The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been looking at this particular collection of teachings that Gil Fransdahl has translated in his new book, The Buddha Before Buddhism, Wisdom from the Early Teachings. And uh, Gil outlines in the introduction four core principles that he says uh, one can find here in this collection and other collections of the Buddhist teachings that scholars see as being early teachings, teachings that haven't been systematized or added on to or presumably changed much over the centuries. And these four principles have to do with seeing the limitations of sense craving that we talked about that I talked about last night and the previous night we talked about fixed views or attachment to views holding to views as a cause for suffering and tonight the last two principles or core principles where the Buddha often talked in these early teachings about not the, the, the sort of fruit of practice is not some transcendence, but is the capacity of being peaceful with conditions, the normal, ordinary, messy conditions that arise for human beings, the capacity to be peaceful through all the twists and turns of life. And the fourth principle, related principle, is how does one train to be peaceful? Uh, teaching, um, as you might expect in this, you know, from your own practice, that if we aim to be peaceful in the actual world we're inhabiting, then we should practice being peaceful with the actual moments of experience, the actual circumstances that arise for us. We should be interested in what's in the way of being peaceful or tranquil or steady now. So before I look at, share some of these teachings and comments from Gil Fransdahl, I thought I'd share this uh, from this article written by Ken McLeod. He's a well-known American Buddhist teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He was a student of Kalu Rinpoche, uh, who's no longer alive, but was quite well known back when he was alive. And this article was in Tricycle. It's called Forget Happiness, which is sort of provocative title. <coughs> and, uh, you know, happiness is used in sort of an ordinary sense and also in, in a spiritual sense. So here he's talking about the ordinary sense of happiness. And he's, uh, these are his comments for s- some traditional um, phrases in the Tibetan canon, the Tibetan collection of Buddhist teachings. And the first stanza is, the happiness of the three worlds disappears in a moment like a dewdrop on a blade of grass. The highest level of freedom is one that never changes. Aim for this. This is the practice of the bodhisattva. One bodhisattva means one on their way to awakening, to freedom. 
He says, the pursuit of happiness for its own sake is a fool's errand. As the goal, as a goal, it is frivolous and unrealistic. Frivolous because happiness is a transient state dependent on many conditions, and unrealistic because life is unpredictable and pain may arise at any time. The happiness you feel when you get something you've always wanted typically lasts no longer than three days. Bliss states in meditation are similar, whether they arise as physical or emotional bliss, or the bliss of infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness. These are high states of absorption in the Buddhist way of thinking. These states soon dissipate once you re-engage the messiness of life. A dewdrop on a blade of grass indeed. And there's a fun story you might have heard, but it's told many different ways. But basically the, the story is somebody's been in a cave for a long time doing really deep practice, touching these deep states of in, infinite bliss, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, infinite space. And uh, someday this person decides they're there, you know, that they're awake, that they're free, free of anger, nothing bothers them. So they decide to walk into town, you know, to let people know, (laughs) which is, I guess, what you do (laughs) when you're free. And on the way to town, uh, this great, wonderful sage runs into a little boy or a little girl and says, you know, you know, the, the boy or the girl asks, well, what are you doing? I thought you lived in that cave. He said, well, I'm free. You know, I'm, I have no more anger, no more greed, totally free. And the child was just astounded. Really? Completely? Yeah, I'm totally free. Totally at ease, nothing bothers me. And you can see where this is going. The incredulous child, really, nothing bothers you. Mosquitoes. It keeps sort of asking these kind of questions. Hunger, cold, heat, nothing but... And the sage just keeps repeating themselves over and over again. No, nothing bothers me, I told you. I have no bothers. (laughs) Nothing bothers me. (laughs) And at some point, as he's walking into town and the little child's pestering him, he realizes... He's not done with his practice because the child's irritating him, right? The messiness of the world, his happiness, which arose because of being withdrawn from the messiness of the world, right? Just like a good sit, we're withdrawn from irritating sounds, cell phones going off or knee pain or, you know, can't go on retreat because I have to take care of a parent or I have to take care of a child, or my dog's old and sick, and i got to be with it. And so happiness, the kind of ordinary happiness, the relatively ordinary happiness that comes from not having problems is ephemeral indeed, like a dew on a blade of grass. And then he writes, the quest for happiness is a continuation of the traditional view of spiritual practice. So traditional meaning, not so wise. A way to transcend the vicissitudes of the human condition. So we're mostly, all of us, obsessed with some version of perfection. 
wanting to be perfect, wanting perfect escape, wanting to transcend what we see as imperfect. And these kind of promises always promise eternity, bliss, purity, union with the ultimate reality, right? These are the sort of things that we imagine. And we can be quite inspired by what we imagine. When we imagine some idea of purity, some idea of eternity, some idea of unity, it can... This is uh, problematic in spiritual circles because people can whip up really ecstatic states through their imagination, right? Just like we can whip up all kinds of interesting things, like dream states can be horrific and it really feels scary, or they can be really beautiful where we chat with Jesus or Buddha or, you know, have some kind of beautiful interaction with nature, you know, talk to the rabbits or whatever your dream or vision might be. And they can, as an imagining, just because it's something imagined, doesn't make it that different than all other aspects of reality because from our deeper understanding, it's all constructed. It's all a bit like a dream. So these things can be quite enticing, these imaginings of bliss and purity and union with an ultimate reality. He says, uh, Ken McLeod says, these four spiritual longings are all escapists, escapist reactions to the challenges everyone encounters in life. Take a moment and think about what you're seeking in your practice. Right? So we should do that. What are we seeking in our practice? Is it a kind of transcendence? If not in God, then in a God surrogate, such as timeless awareness, pure bliss, infinite light. Are you looking for an awareness so deep and powerful that your frustration and difficulties with life vanish in the presence of your understanding and wisdom? Are you not looking for a ticket out of the messiness of life? I really catch that more and more in terms of my home life, you know, like um, the kind of food, the way the house is organized. Now we're taking care of our basement and getting rid of the, a lot of the clutter down there. And, and, and I really see it creeps in all the time, this idea of like, I'm going to get it together. And then I'm going to really take care of the landscaping and I'm going to have a little organic garden on the roof or somewhere where there's a lot of light and I'm going to have seeds that I can you know, grow every year and I'll have a little grow light to get them started so they'll be you know, ready to plant in May and we're going to do only use renewable energy and I'm going to have a good water filter so the water doesn't have lead and other heavy metals that will cause me to have Alzheimer's and not be able to realize how wonderful my life is now that I've spent so much energy and money making it all so perfect. And then, you know, we, everything starts to bother us when we have whatever your particular version of perfection is, whether it has to do with getting your home life together or your partner together or your body together 
or your meditation practice together, then everything feels like a threat to whatever our idea of perfection is. We're really vulnerable and easily agitated. And really, it's a setup for betrayal. Because at some point, even if whether or not we get sort of manifest the vision that we've constructed, we're going to be betrayed. Either we'll get what we constructed and we'll realize it isn't the ticket that saves us, or we don't get it and we feel betrayed because my ticket to heaven, to happiness, was thwarted. You know, some, somebody, something got in the way, or I just wasn't up to it. You know, so I failed myself. And then he goes on, he writes, if you think of freedom as a state, you are, in effect, looking for a kind of heaven. Instead, think of freedom as a way of experiencing life itself. Instead, think of freedom as a way of experiencing life itself, a way of being, you could say, or a way of relating even. And he goes on, a continuous flow in which you meet what arises in your experience. Open to it, do what needs to be done to the best of your ability, and then receive the result. Now that sounds like our practice, not the fruit of practice, right? A continuous flow in which you meet what arises in your experience, open to it, do what needs to be done to the best of your ability, and then receive the result. And you do this over and over again. Now, this is really, I think, an important point. You know, it's, it's some very refined version of fake it until you make it, right? It's like if we want to be free in the life we're living, let's practice being free. Let's get really curious about what arises that appears to be in the way of being free. What is it about this moment, what's arising in this moment, that is so convincing for us, so convincing us that this isn't it, I'm not there, I'm miles away, I'm, I'm lifetimes away from freedom that I seek, from the peace, the release that I seek. I am so screwed up. Or I started way too late in life doing my spiritual practice. Or I I have attention deficit disorder. So I'll have to wait until another lifetime. (laughs) Or my joints really hurt and I just have a lot of physical pain. Or I have a cat that just does not settle down and won't let me kind of do my practice. Or I have a busy job. Or there is so much injustice in the world that I can't be bothered with looking at all the agitation and hate and greed in my mind because I got to deal with it out there. And, you know, infinite number of other thoughts that we have. And he goes on. He says, a freedom that never changes. Right? So you do this over and over again. A freedom that never changes 
then becomes the constant exercise of everything you know and understand. It is the way you engage life. It is not something that sets you apart from life. Right? He's talking about freedom or real happiness instead of ordinary happiness. It is the way you engage life. It is not something that sets you apart from life. How else is it possible for people who practice in prison and other highly restricted environments to say, to say that they found freedom even within their confinement? Like there are a lot of powerful examples of people having deep experiences of freedom in very outwardly difficult circumstances in their lives. He goes on, life is tough, but when you see and accept what is actually happening, even, it, even if it is very difficult or painful, mind and body relax. Right? When you see and accept what is actually happening, even if it is a very difficult or painful, uh, if it's very difficult or painful, mind and body relax. There is an exquisite quality that comes from just experiencing what arises completely with no separation between awareness and experience. I always like to say, like in terms of what he's pointing to here, what is the experience of something ordinary like knee pain or restlessness or doubt when the mind isn't taking it personally? I mean, just something that simple. Is pain a problem? What makes pain, physical pain or emotional pain, a problem? It's the thought that it's a problem for me. It's the whole construction that interprets what we call pain or emotional pain or being too cold or being too hot or being restless or having doubt. And you can even see if you can intuit like that sense of don't know mind or sense of innocence that opens that window a little bit where kind of a crack in our arrogance, well, maybe this is okay. I mean, not in an ordinary sense okay, but maybe the whole construction that I'm a deluded, suffering human being that needs to practice in order to become awake, in order to become happy or free, maybe that's just a thought a thought that has all kinds of karmic implications when the mind identifies with it, gets attached to it. right? And a thought that maybe we don't question very often because it's very compelling that I'm a deluded, suffering human being that needs to practice in order to be awake, in order to be free. It seems so right. It kind of aligns with our experience because... Life feels heavy a lot of the time, or sticky, or problematic. But we, we don't really know whether that is caused by the conclusion, I'm a suffering human being who needs to practice in order to be free. Like we assume that that thought, that conclusion, comes from the heaviness of life. Oh, Things are heavy, my life is difficult, there's confusion, so I don't have my act together yet. So I need to practice 
and then later somewhere down the road, if I work really hard, I'll be free. But it could be the other way, you know, chicken egg, right? Having that thought, I'm a deluded, suffering human being whose heart is burdened, may be exactly why life feels heavy, why things are sticky, why things are difficult. The clinging to that view. So repeat this paragraph. Life is tough, but when you see and accept what is actually happening, even if it is very difficult or painful, mind and body relax. There is an exquisite quality that comes from just experiencing what arises completely with no separation between awareness and experience. Some call it joy, but it is not a giddy or excited joy. It is, a deep, it is deep and quiet, a joy that in some sense is always there waiting for you, but usually touched only when some challenge, pain, or tragedy leaves you with no other option but to open and accept what is happening in your life. This is the great thing about being in a group of people where we have 40-minute sits, because it's a little bit harder to bolt or to go do something, right, because of the peer pressure, you know, the container. So we sit there. Even when we feel like, I want to bolt, or this is too much, or nothing's happening, this is a waste of time, this is stupid. Right? So all those things happen, but we don't. We just stay and we get, in moments, we get cornered by our own reactive mind, our own fixed views about what's going on in my practice right now, how bad it is, how frustrating it is. It was good, but then I lost it, started to think about it, and then it, all that ease and peace went away, and now I can't get back there. But sometimes when we get cornered, then it's just so overwhelming we give up. We give up trying to fix it or make it other than what it is. And then we can get a little glimpse of what practice really is or what the path is really about. Later I'll read You know, one of the things, uh, one of the pieces from the text is that Peace isn't something that sages grasp, right? Wise people don't hold to peace. Wise people do just one thing. They let go. That's what wise people do. They keep letting go. They don't get attached, even to really beautiful, wholesome states like peace. They let go. And a couple more paragraphs here, short paragraphs. Others call it truth, but this is a loaded and misleading word, right? So that's why we use the word practice a lot at Common Ground, although it has shadows too, like of a kind of effort. But it, it involves, like at least the word practice has a sense of engagement and uh, ongoing process. Some call it truth, but this is a loaded and misleading word carrying with it the notion of something that exists apart from experience itself. Truth as a concept sets up an opposition with what is held to be not true. 
And such duality necessarily leads to hierarchical authority, institutional thinking, and violence. In this freedom, you are free from the projections of thought and feeling. And you are awake and present in your life. Reactions may still arise, but they come and go on their own, like snowflakes alighting on a hot stone, like mist in the morning sun, or like a thief in an empty house. What is freedom? It is nothing more, nothing less than life lived awake. So again, that's from Ken McLeod. Forget happiness. So you saw, I hope many of you saw the article that I left out, a number of copies called Natural Buddhism. And in that short article, Gil is talking, Gil Fransdell is talking about the same set of teachings. And it's also his response to what in the general Western world is called secular Buddhism. And there's this, you know, one of the many debates where people have fixed views is sort of, you know, secular Buddhism like mindfulness-based stress reduction and all the kinds of mindfulness practices you see in therapeutic circles, hospitals, now more and more in businesses. The Pentagon even has incorporated mindfulness in different ways. One of the students that comes to my retreat out at IMS uh, for a while was teaching in the Pentagon. He used to be from Minnesota, and then he moved out to the East Coast. So Gil doesn't like secular Buddhism, and I think that's it's good that that word he says it's an oxymoron in the sense of uh, the Buddha is addressing spiritual or religious questions like what to do with human existence. So in that sense, what the Buddha was talking about is religious or spiritual. I mean, it's not in the in the sense of talking about things that are supernatural. So he prefers, Gil prefers natural Buddhism to uh, emphasize the Buddhist teachings before a lot of supernatural stuff because of the culture in which the Buddha lived, God incorporated into it. To really talk about it in a more direct, immediate, natural non-supernatural way. So some of the teachings on karma, I mean, karma is a really important teaching, but some of the things you hear in the Buddhist tradition about karma talk about, you know, like what's going to happen in future lives when you do this and that. And doesn't mean you should say that that's a lie, that that's not true. It just means it may not have that much to do with learning how to be peaceful, figuring out how to be peaceful that stuff around karma, that stuff about rebirth, that stuff about psychic powers. And again, I, I don't think it's appropriate to say it's not true. It's a bunch of hogwash that people just constructed. It's, I think the appropriate stance is, who knows? Who knows? And to really more and more learn to inhabit that space when people tell you things about, oh, you should do this, or... This is what the Buddha said. Well, who knows? 
and to really work with what we can directly experience in our practice. Like, what is the Buddha talking about that I can directly work with and gain confidence in in my own practice? And so in these early teachings, you know, the Buddha, I think I mentioned the first night, he didn't talk so much about uh, people who have finished the practice in exalted terms. Like even the term Buddha is rarely used in these early texts. Usually the word that's used is sage, or which you could say like translate as a wise person. And even like a word we hear a lot, arhat, like a fully awakened person, which means somebody worthy of devotion, worthy of offerings. That word isn't used at all. It's, it's really the sage is described in terms of the qualities of that person's mind and how they act in the world. That's what makes somebody wise or a sage is like the kind of qualities that are showing up in their mind and how they navigate the world, world or their circumstances. And in short, peacefully. That's how they do it. They navigate their life, their world, their circumstances peacefully. And the qualities in their mind are, as you might expect, peace, kindness, clarity. Right? And it's the peace, you know, peace is the primary word that's used. Santi is the Pali. And it's the peace of a mind that's not attached or a peace of a mind that's letting go not attached, not clinging, not grasping, not craving. Gill writes, clinging is explained as the primary reason a person is not peaceful. The release of clinging is the primary means to peace. The value of these teachings is not found in philosophy, logic, or external religious authorities, but rather in the results they bring to those who live by them. The goal emphasized in this text is described both by the states of mind attained and by the mental activities that have been pacified or abandoned. The most common description of what what is attained are peace, calmness, tranquility, and equanimity. Nothing so out of the ordinary, right? We all have some sense of those qualities, right? We may not be able to inhabit or abide all the time, but we've touched those qualities. And then he says, in sharp contrast, clinging, craving, entrenchment, and quarreling are the most frequently mentioned activities that are abandoned. This just makes common sense. Another way that the Buddha describes you know, the wise person, the person who's benefited from their practice, achieved some success in their practice, is somebody who knows and sees. And then sort of begs the question, knows and sees what? Well, knows and sees the way things are. Dharma or Dhamma. That everything arises and passes, right? Everything's in motion, everything's coming and going, and it's not personal. Meaning, The coming and going, whether we're talking about internal experience like thoughts and emotions or external experience in terms of sights and sounds and touches, 
these things that are coming and going, when we say they're not personal, not self, it just means that they're conditional. They're lawful, conditional, and there's no uh, the conditional unfolding of how things are changing is interdependent. Nobody owns it. It doesn't belong to anybody. It's nature. It's this interdependent nature. It, both this is true, both internally and externally. Things are unfolding. Thoughts come and go lawfully according to the nature that's been set in motion, the causes and conditions that have been set in motion, which nobody chose. Mark, I didn't choose the causes and conditions that are playing out in terms of the thoughts and emotions and reactions and whatever that arise in my mind. Another way you can talk about what a wise person knows and sees is right, knows and sees how suffering, how stressful states arise through clinging, through getting attached, and how suffering ceases through the letting go of attachment and the letting go of clinging. So again, just to repeat a little, the Buddha in these early discourses, you can think of the Buddha as an actual human being. You know, when he first started teaching, before the teaching started to get repeated and systematized and institutionalized and things like that, he described the fruit, the point of practice is to become a wise person. Wise person being defined as somebody who doesn't cling, doesn't have fixed views, doesn't misunderstand sense pleasure, doesn't take sense pleasure to be more than what it is. Right? So because of that, they're calm, they're peaceful, not entrenched, not agitated. And because they're peaceful, they see and know things as they are. They see and know the way it is, that things are coming and going and are not personal. And they see and know the causes for stress and the causes for release. Because they're not even trying to see those things. But because they're peaceful, the mind is clear. They're not even trying to have a clear mind. The mind is naturally clear because of the peace. And the peace is there because they've abandoned clinging or attachment. And then there's clarity. So clarity knows and sees the way it is. Things are coming and going and are not personal. It's nature. Everything's nature. Lawful and conditional, interdependent, and not self. Not specific, not belonging, being owned by a something, a somebody. And, that, and, the, and, and the wise person knows and sees the causes for stress and the causes for release. Gill writes a little later, the most common attribute associated with a sage is peace. Such a person advocates peace, sees and knows peace, 
is at peace and is peaceful. The sage is also tranquil, still and unmoving, unshakable and equanimous. Though peace is clearly an attribute of sages, they do not depend on peace or intentionally take it up. Right? So it's a natural fruit or a natural result of what? Letting go. Right? So you're not holding to the peace, they're letting go. So that's what Gil says next, the next sentence. This is because sages do not depend on or take up anything. Instead, they let go. Then a couple pages later, he writes, um, talking about the Buddha, he commonly describes those who have realized this goal as peaceful. They are peaceful among those not at peace. That's one of the verses. They know that release, that is being free of clinging, is peace. Right? Non-clinging is peace. It's not more complicated than that. It doesn't mean it's easy to live a life of non-clinging, but it's really simple. Right? Non-attachment. It's really simple. Some of you know John Kabat-Zinn. He's quite famous. He started the MBSR programs, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and has written a number of books, and I've seen him from time to time at some of the longer retreat at IMS that I sat. He was there practicing as well. And so he's done a lot of his practice at IMS. He started originally as a Zen student. Um, but uh, I remember he was visiting China, and uh, somebody took him to a monastery there. And it was an older monk, and I think they had a translator. and. Uh, you know, the older monk had been told that this is this famous Westerner who's been really instrumental in bringing Buddhism to the West. And, and he really wanted to put, I think, John in his place, or just at least check him out. Like, does this guy know anything? And so, you know, he's sitting down. And this is uh, in the Zen tradition. You know, Zen is actually the word used in Japanese Zen Buddhism. But uh, in China, it's Chan. So he's a Chan master in China, and uh, they they have a real emphasis on like meeting, you know, sitting down in heart to heart connection, and and so this Zen master, this Chan master, asks John something like, "So what's the whole point of Buddhism, or something like that, or what are the Buddha teacher?" And John says, "Non-attachment. It's all about non-attachment," and the master loved it. He thought oh, this guy knows what he's doing. And they got along really well after that. <laughs> so if you want to ever, if you ever have to pass quiz, a Buddhist <laughs> quiz, uh, it's, it's this point of non-clinging or letting go or non-attachment. Not peace, right? Peace is the natural result of a heart that lets go of attachment, a mind that lets go of attachment. Peace is what's left when the heart lets go. Gil says, Gil, uh, he writes rather, they do not see the nature of ultimate reality or some form of ultimate consciousness. Rather, sages know and see the ways in which people struggle, right? Oh, look at, you're so, I mean, we don't say that because it's not necessarily helpful to say to our friends or our family, 
oh, you're so attached, but we see it, don't we? When we're in a balanced place and we're hanging around someone who's really caught, attached, has a strong fixed view, it just stands out. It really stands out. And if we're really in a good place of balance, it breaks our heart wide open with compassion. Like, because the heart understands how unnecessary the attachment is and also understands how common it is, like how much habit energy leads one to get attached and how completely unnecessary it is. And it will only be the cause for suffering. Sages know and see the ways in which people struggle. They know what is not harmonious and what is dangerous. They know what is not harmonious they know what is not harmonious and what is dangerous. They know what is not harmonious. Oops, I repeated that. <laughs> Typed it twice. They know the problems that come from pride and holding on to opinions. They see how people selfishly tr- thrash about, get elated and deflated in their disputes, speak with arrogance, and cling to teachings. Right? So this is exactly how we should read the news. Right? We, we see... It's like the wisdom from a place of balance, the wisdom sees attachment. And then it sees the natural, unavoidable fruit of attachment, quarrels, disputes, hate, revenge, power plays. All of that naturally flows from attachment. By having insight into these afflictive states, a wise person knows not to get involved with them and to let go of them. Right? So then in what, reading the news, seeing with wisdom, attachment, and all that that sets in motion, the karmic effect of watching the news, reading the news is, honey, don't add to that. Right? Whatever you do, don't invest in the world of attachment, fixed views. The world does not need more of this. It needs something else. But that's not what we often do when we're reading the news. We get sucked in right, to you know, our own fixed view. And we feel alive. <laughs> that's the seductiveness of fixed views is the ego, the sense, the constructed sense of self feels quite alive when we're in disputes, when we feel right, superior. Or we feel also quite alive when we feel inferior. And we also feel quite alive when we feel the same. Like, we're all the same here. You know, we all have that, don't we? We just assume, like, yeah, we're all equals here. And it feels like that's enlivening, like, to be in our tribe, to be in our group. One last quote from Gill. He says, The Book of Eights focuses on fundamental, personal, and psychological transformations for which individuals are personally responsible. Train, he quotes the Buddha here, train fully in your own release. The The text provides no help from gods or external forces. 
And you can imagine, I mean, even today that's a pretty provocative statement, but much more so probably at the time and on purpose. Because to inspire the practice, right, to really pay attention to what attachment sets in motion and to realize moments of non-attachment, you have to take responsibility for your own well-being. As long as we're thinking somebody else is looking out for us, we'll count on that to take care of us. And we won't do the very difficult work of paying attention to what's happening in the mind. It's difficult, right? Just to open to our present moment experience is often unpleasant. So nobody's going to do it if they're imagining somebody else is going to take care of them. So let's take a look at the passage for tonight and tomorrow. And again, don't, don't make it more than what it is. It's just some teachings, and some of them might be inspiring for you. Maybe not, but take a look at it. See if there's anything here of value for you. So it's called The Discourse Before Breaking Apart. Peaceful and Independent is the subtitle that Gil gives this chapter. And before he uh, translates this poem, you know, the really verses or poems, he says, um, the discourse on before breaking apart begins with a question asking, and I didn't include this, I I kind of just put selections because it was too long to get on one page. So it begins with a question asking what a person sees and how a person behaves when he or she is peaceful. In the subsequent verses, the Buddha addresses the second part of the question, how such a person behaves. It could be that the Buddha intentionally ignores the issue of what a peaceful person sees because being at peace doesn't depend on seeing anything. It doesn't depend on anything at all because it comes from letting go. And you can let go to anything, right? Not clinging. We don't need a special experience to not cling to or to not be attached to. We could be not attached to any moment's experience. So it's not about what we see or what we're experiencing. Let me just read this section to end, or the selections to end, and just hear and see what resonates for you. Free of craving before their death, independent of past and future, not making up anything in the present, they revere nothing. And again, you know, I think on purpose, and Gil confirms us in his understanding, the Buddha is on purpose being provocative to the people at the time because there were lots of devotional activities. It was primarily a devotional culture at the time, devoted to ritual and to routines and to gods. They revere nothing. Free free of anger, free of fear, not boasting, not worrying. They are sages who, when speaking, teach without agitation not clinging to the future, nor grieving the past. 
They see seclusion in the midst of sense contacts. That's sort of interesting. They see seclusion in the midst of sense contacts. So right in the middle of the messiness. So here secluded doesn't mean I'm away from the messiness. Secluded means the mind is away from attachment, is secluded from attachment, or you could say secluded from misunderstanding sense experience. Secluded from thinking that sense experience should be reacted to, attached to, and are not guided by views. They are neither clinging nor deceitful, not greedy or stingy, neither imprudent nor offensive, and don't engage in malicious speech. Always equanimous and mindful. In this world, they don't think of themselves as equal, superior, or inferior. They're not wasting, we're not wasting time. Like it's such a funny thing to do when we see somebody like, is that person better than me? Are they lowly, not as good as me? Or they're about the same. Like, what's that about? It's kind of a subtle control, like trying to define. They have no swollen pride. Depending on nothing, having known the Dharma, the way things are, they are independent. They have no craving for becoming and not becoming. I say they are at peace. They who are not concerned with sensual pleasures They have no bonds and have crossed beyond attachments. Taking nothing in the world as their own, having no sorrow for what doesn't exist, and uninvolved in doctrines, they are called peaceful. A lot to work with there. So I'll just share, Wynn shared in the small group the other day, there's this passage from Ajahn Tanisaro, and he's just talking about the aspiration for practice. And there's just a paragraph here I'll read to end our evening, or to end this talk at least. And this is a book, Ajahn Tanisaro, he's a Western Buddhist monk and the abbot of Wat Metta. It's a monastery outside of San Diego. Wat is just the Thai word for monastery. Metta, you know, is loving kindness. And uh, some people from Kamagans community have practiced there. Up, there's uh, the monastery owns uh, avocado grove, and they have little platforms where you can put up a tent and uh, practice there. So if you're in the San Diego area, you should look it up. He's a wonderful teacher, very powerful, prolific teacher. And he writes in this uh, book on the Noble Eightfold Path, a series of talks he gave. He says. The Buddha doesn't talk much about the goal. After all, it's not something you can create, so there's no point in describing it too much. For otherwise, you might try to make the description, to take the description and clone it, which doesn't work. He talks about the goal just enough to make you understand that it's worth pursuing, the ultimate happiness, the ultimate freedom, totally outside of any physical or mental location in space or time. As he says, if you hold to a perception that the goal might be accompanied by any kind of, if you hold to the perception that the goal might be accompanied by any kind of suffering or regret, 
Drop that perception. Don't listen to it. The deathless, which is a synonym for awakening, the deathless is totally satisfying and ends all your hungers. Once your hungers are satisfied, that solves all your problems as well. So, Even though, as we learn from these discourses, it's quite ordinary, not supernatural, not like out there, transcendent, still it resolves all the problems in our human life. So it's provocative. I mean, it's kind of shocking, you know, that someone would say there is an end of suffering, especially looking at the world we live in. I don't think, you know, nobody in the, you know, no student of the Buddha would say you should believe that there is an end to suffering. But it is important, I think, to keep an open mind that not only can we have a good sit where we feel relatively calm, but there is a way for all problems that arise in human life for them to be resolved. But that doesn't mean we won't get cold, doesn't mean we won't die or get dementia or experience the pain of loss. It just means it won't be a problem. Now, I know that sounds mysterious. So that's why we shouldn't believe in it. We should just have an open mind that it's possible to be in the messy world with dementia and loss and praise and blame and not experience it as a problem. To have emotional pain, like the pain of loss of a loved one, but not experience that as a problem. And this is what we learn when we practice, right? Because we're having some version of gain and loss when we're sitting all the time. And we're practicing being completely undefended, right? That sort of intimate, that compassionate intimacy. We're just letting it rip, just letting whatever comes and goes in the mind, in the body, emotionally, just giving it space to move. And we realize that everything can happen, and that's okay. It's really okay to just let everything happen. Or, if you prefer, you can construct a somebody who doesn't want what's happening to happen and see how that works. (laughs) Until you realize that doesn't work. And then start over again. So let's leave it here. We have 20 minutes for walking practice or so. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.